Well, good morning. It's lovely to see you here today. We're up to week 457 in the book of John. Just kidding. Um, But we are. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. And uh, if you keep your Bibles open at John 15, uh, beginning at verse 18, that's where we're up to. We're actually in the middle of the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus is leaving for the Father. He has just at the beginning of chapter 15 given uh, his disciples the rich comfort of knowing that they are joined to the true vine. They have the privilege of calling upon God in prayer so that they will bear much fruit, the fruit of love. And the result of all of this will be profound joy. God will give us his joy and our joy will be full. It sounds wonderful and it is, but that's not the whole picture. As Jesus continues, he now describes the setting in which all of this takes place. Uh, In short, all this takes place in the context of the world. Although the world is not a difficult concept for us to grasp, it is important that we grasp exactly what Jesus means when he talks about the world. It's one of those theologically loaded terms that appears often throughout the Gospel of John. And so to really understand what Jesus is saying here, let's just do a quick little survey back review of what Jesus has been saying about the world in John's Gospel. Uh, Famously, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son and so forth. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Uh, a little later in John 7, John is, uh, Jesus is actually speaking to his, to his brothers, his, his uh, half-brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Uh, a little later in John 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Uh, and then uh, a little earlier in the Last Supper narrative, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So at the end of this pretty quick survey, we conclude that in John's Gospel, the world means something like human people and society in rebellion against God, following Satan and apart from grace. But the thing that we need to remember despite this, God loves the world so much that he sent his only son to save the world. So when we read about the world in John's Gospel, we need to remember that uh, he's not referring to oceans and mountains and sunsets and rainforests and the Great Barrier Reef. Okay? It's, it's to people that Jesus came. People set in unbelieving opposition to God. It is human beings that God loves so much. God loves everything that he's created. He does. But the way that John's Gospel uses this term, the world... He's talking about a human society set in opposition to God. And as I thought about that through the week, as I sort of sat with that definition, I have to say I had a growing sense of discomfort. 
because the truth is, is there's, a, there's a part of me that really loves that world. Um, I feel pretty comfortable in the world. It's my natural habitat, actually. I know how it works. I know how to play the game like a, like a native, right? Uh, and truth be told, it's often the people of the world to whom I look for acceptance or for recognition or significance. God loves them and I love them and that's where it gets complicated, if I could put it that way. It gets complicated and so Jesus has something important that he wants us to know. So we're at uh, the beginning of our passage then at verse 15. Notice how many times the world uh, is used as a term here. Verse 18 and 19. Read along if you like. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I find these words a bit of a jolt, actually, and this part of John's Gospel quite hard to hear. We've just heard this wonderful truth that we are welcomed into friendship with God on the back of Jesus being the true vine. Uniquely, he is in right relationship with God, righteous before him, loved and fully accepted, and we are included now in his relationship with the Father. It's a wonderful thing. And that's why this is so complicated, because the world hates Jesus, and therefore us too. Why is that? Because there has been a fundamental change. We are no longer belonging to the world if we belong to God. If we're part of the true vine, then we've been chosen out of the world. And the world will extend its hatred of Jesus and may very well include us in its hatred also. And Jesus wants us to know this. You see in verse 18 that phrase that we have translated, keep in mind this. It's actually a command in the original text. Jesus is saying, know this. You should understand this. Prepare yourself for life in a world in which you do not belong, in which you are fundamentally different. Now, hate is a pretty strong word, isn't it? But hours before Jesus is unjustly tried three times, beaten up and then crucified, hate seems a pretty accurate word to describe things. The world, human society set in opposition to God, hates Jesus and given the right circumstances will act fully upon that hatred. And we need to know, says Jesus, there's a very good chance that that hatred will extend to you. We need to know that the world will not always everywhere hate all Christians, nor does it mean that its dislike for Christians will always be absolutely intense. Okay? There have been, in fact, many times when Christianity has been in the ascendancy, when it's actually been popular, even desirable for you to be a Christian. It'll help you get ahead in the world. Uh, one of the first examples of this in human history was uh, under the Roman Emperor Constantine. When he became a Christian, he, edict, he issued an edict, 313 AD, protecting all Christians from persecution. And suddenly, guess what? It becomes very expedient to be a Christian under Constantine. It's how you got ahead. 
I guess uh, for some of us we can remember a time a little while ago in American politics where candidates would trumpet their Christian faith. However thin it might have been, it was kind of a necessary thing to do in order to be elected. But in more recent times, I think we've seen a shift. As the world seems to be developing a kind of an aversion and a dislike for Christians all over again. Circumstances do vary, we, we know that. But it's not hard to think about places where extreme nationalism results in severe oppression for Christians. China's oppression of all but state-sanctioned religion kind of comes to mind. We saw our, our link with the China partnership and uh, people such as Open Doors expose this. Uh, according to Open Doors, North Korea is actually worse as a sort of a state uh, sponsored or you know, a nationalist kind of opposition. The only problem is, of course, Korea doesn't have the same technical resources and influential kind of finances that China has. So that's nationalism kind of pushing down Christianity. But where you mix the same fierce nationalism with a kind of religion, with a form of any religion really, uh, as it is in, say, Egypt or in Myanmar, or in Yemen, Christians actually live in fear of their own police force. Christians live in fear of their own government, their own army. So that's what happens when governments sponsor uh, attacks against Christianity. What happens if that militant religion is outside of government control? Well, that's what we call terrorism. Think about what's happened most recently in Sri Lanka. Tragic. On Easter Sunday, that Christian churches would be bombed. That's one end of the spectrum. What happens if we go down to the other end of the spectrum? Let's call it the far left, shall we? We get a dislike for Christians in different terms. Uh, in a society that demands absolute freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, there is an inevitable clash of freedoms what happens when your freedom inhibits my freedom? When your freedom opposes my freedom, okay? That's kind of like Australia, right? It seems that in Australia, when we have a clash of freedoms, who wins? Well, it's whoever controls the media or whoever has the most cash. A good example of this is what I like to call the current Qantas versus Israel Folau case with uh, Rugby Australia, who are kind of in the middle, in the crossfire. So I suppose you might know Israel Folau, he's a rugby player, and he likes to post Christian messages on his social media feed, hundreds of them, very often quoting Bible verses. But when those Bible references include references to homosexuality, that triggers a, that triggers a very strong reaction from the LGBTI community. And because Qantas who is Israel Folau's employer's sponsor, that's where the money's coming from, because they are a very strong supporter of the LGBTI uh, agenda, there is a problem now for Rugby Australia in the middle. Uh, Israel Folau asserts his right, I've got the freedom to express my faith and say whatever I like on social media. And the other guys, Rugby Australia, they say, well, no, you're bringing our sport into disrepute. We can't have that. And so you'll see lots of stories this weekend about this particular case because it's not really about sport. This is actually about the freedom to speak 
in a pluralistic society and about the right of an employer to control what you may or may not say. It's an interesting test case. There's all sorts of ironies that are involved in this, I think. Just think about this. Israel Folau could be kicked out of his sport because he doesn't fit the values of Rugby Australia. In his offensive post, which looks like this, he supports the values of sobriety, of truth, of Christian sexual ethics and kind of general decency. But there is no room for that sort of thing in rugby. It's kind of odd, isn't it, don't you think? Since this is a legal matter and it's inevitably going to end up in a higher court of law, the truth is actually on trial here. So one commentator, Bernard Gaynor, writes this. Our legal system, in its zeal for the facts, will allow people to swear on the Bible that what they say is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. The same Bible that Israel Folau quoted from. The same Bible that Raylene Castle, she's the boss of Rugby Australia, says is so offensive that merely quoting from it should see one cast, weeping and gnashing their teeth into the exterior darkness. The same Bible on which our governors, general and prime ministers take their oath of office. So what we have here is the clash of competing freedoms in a secular world. The LGBTI community are free to live as they choose. They are free to publicly say whatever they wish. Mardi Gras is their platform of choice uh, to lampoon any political figures who disagree with their position. You could ask the member of Warringah about that. When this freedom, though, is criticised by somebody else's viewpoint, that's where the conflict is. Outrage follows. But instead of fearing the government or the secret police, it's actually the power of the sponsor's dollar or the media, which we fear, which is directed against, in this case, a Christian person. I tell you this because Jesus wants us to know that this is the kind of world that we live in. We do not live in a Christian country. It never was a Christian country, but welcome to Australia in the 21st century. Good to have you here. This is the kind of world that Jesus is preparing us for. And to do this, he gives us now an, a second imperative. Okay? Verses 18 and 19 was the first imperative. You should know this. The second imperative is in verses 20 to 25. Have a look as I read them out again. Jesus says, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So remember is the second imperative. In a world in which we do not belong, remember, call to mind, recall, focus your thoughts on the truth that we are Jesus' servants. He is our master and they will treat us the same way that they treated him. It's kind of a dark passage, isn't it, that we're reading this morning from the Bible. And yet there's a wonderful underlying truth that pins this thing all together. And the truth is this, we are absolutely identified with Jesus. God treats us as Jesus in salvation. We are branches of the true vine. 
And the world treats us as Jesus also. In his absence, the servant stands in the master's stead for good and for bad. That's the incredible underlying truth here. We are treated as Jesus. And it is in this connection with God that we need to remember, we ought to keep it front of mind as we live in this world. We are servants of the Master Jesus. And that is an incredible privilege and a great responsibility. We belong to the one who came to save the world. And yet the world is set in opposition to him. And that reality, if we can grasp it, is quite a binary kind of situation. It becomes untenable to have a foot in both camps. Either you will follow Jesus or you will follow the world and the prince of this world with it, whom Jesus describes earlier. So ultimately, we would actually do really well to make a conscious choice as to whether we will leave the world or whether we will stay friends with it. Remember, Jesus says, you can't have a foot in both camps here. And when I look to people around me for their acceptance and acclamation, that's not really going to be a good thing. Not necessarily, not for me. Human society may not like what I do, even though I do it with what I think is good motives. On the other hand, the, the pursuit of, of comfort and, and leisure and a leafy North Shore lifestyle, turns out it actually could be quite a dangerous thing for me. It may ultimately undermine my faith, career, success, respect from a world that is in foundational opposition to Jesus is risky. It is risky to want that. So this remembering that John calls us to, this disciplined thought and focused attention is what we actually need to survive and even thrive as Christians in contemporary Australia or in contemporary Sri Lanka or China or Hollywood or cyberspace. We live in a world that will not necessarily protect or even welcome Christian values or teaching. We are actually a diminishing minority. And we shouldn't expect any favours or any special treatment. We are servants of a very different master. And the pattern of our master is not one that is easy to embrace. Have a look at verse 25 again. Jesus says, All this, this situation, is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus knows that the world's rejection of his testimony, even as he steals himself for crucifixion in the coming hours, he knows that this is part of the pattern. The Messiah King in the Old Testament has a pattern associated with him. God's anointed has always experienced injustice and suffering. And if you read through the book of Psalms, you will see this pattern over and over again. Uh, we read earlier Psalm 69, and didn't your heart go out to the author of that psalm? Wow. Uh, just a quick flashback to it. He says, I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. 
Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. That's the quote that Jesus quotes, right? Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Remember what happens on the cross. This psalm, Psalm 69, that is attributed to King David. His experience of injustice and rejection, even from his own sons who tried to kill him and steal his throne, set the pattern. There is a template for the Messiah. God's righteous one walks the path of rejection and suffering before God's vindication, before God's salvation and before God's great glory. As David, so Jesus. As Jesus... So us. And as John says, we should remember this. Actually, Jesus says, John reports, we should remember this. We should remember that the opposition that we experience is without reason. It's not rational. There's no rational cause. It's just the basic opposition to God. That's the world where we live. And as bleak as this passage sounds so far, there is one further reality that Jesus wants to actually draw our attention to. And this reality actually shapes our entire attitude to the world in which we live. And I'm at verse 26 here. See if you can uh, see how this changes everything. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. I think Jesus' words here dramatically shape our attitude toward the world. If not for these worlds, I think we would probably say as Christians, you know what, uh, we should just turn our back on the world completely. We should, we should just leave them alone, abandon them and let God deal with them later. But that's not at all where Jesus lands, not at all. Instead of abandoning the world, we are very much to remain in the world with a clear role in relation to the world. Because the Holy Spirit is coming, because he is the means by which we are connected to the true vine, which we are grafted into him, because he is our life and our fundamental connection with God, because the Spirit comes, we join with him in testifying about Jesus Christ in the world. See, in verse 26, Jesus refers to the advocate. He's like a barrister. He's the one who speaks to persuade, to demonstrate the truth in a court of law. That's what barristers do. It's what an advocate does. The role of Jesus' apostles here is to testify, telling everything that Jesus has done and said from the beginning of his ministry. And so I take it that in a derivative sense, we too share that same role as the apostles to testify. We carry on their testimony. And there is a subtle but very important difference between the role of the advocate and the role of the witness. The witness testifies. They tell what they know. And it is the advocate's job to persuade, 
He is the one who will demonstrate the truthfulness and the compelling nature of our testimony to Jesus. And so in this world, as Jesus' servants and as his representatives, we also must testify. We have a responsibility to tell others what we know of Jesus. We commend him to others. We, 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 we present him as best we can. We explain. We, we answer questions. We try to be as clear and as accurate as we possibly can as we respectfully tell the truth about Jesus. But we dare not be silent. We never abandon the world that God loves so much that he would send his only son to save it. But it is not our role to compel belief. It's not our job to demand obedience or to force or to coerce or to threaten. Instead, what is our role? It is to pray earnestly for the Spirit to carry out his role in the lives of the people that we love so much and we long to see saved. The result is up to him. And so as someone has said, I think fairly often from this place, we need to learn how to lose well. And we will also see God's grace wonderfully and surprisingly change lives as we pray. If anything should draw us to our knees in prayer, surely it's the state of the world that we live in. Jesus says, in this world, which, which hates him, which hates his father, which is culpably refusing to believe, even though they've seen everything, he sends the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to persuade people of the truth, to compel belief and so forth. Our job is to testify. And I think that begins with prayer. Asking that God would have mercy. So in John 15 here, Jesus' picture of his disciples as faithful branches of the true vine, it's kind of incomplete to just see the vine and the branches and not see the context, the wider context of the world in which this takes place. We are profoundly connected to Jesus. And so we exhibit the fruit of love and we experience his joy. But we live in a world that hates Jesus. And so in all likelihood, will probably hate us too. But instead of hating back, we follow the example of our master. We love with great purpose the world in which we find ourselves. So united with Jesus, we testify to him in the world. Will you pray with me? Lord our God, we look around at this world that we know so well and we think of the people that we work alongside, the people that we enjoy leisure with, the people that we uh, spend our days with and we recognise their desperate need to know you, their desperate need of salvation. They may not see it, they may not recognise it, but we ask, Lord, please will you have mercy Please will you open their eyes to see the truth of Jesus. And Father, please will you give us such courage. Please give us the words to speak that we would testify to Jesus. And may your Holy Spirit take those simple words and change lives. We ask it that Jesus would be glorified. Amen.